Our scripture this morning is Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. As we gather around God's word this morning, uh, we should remember uh, the four that we sent off last week. They have arrived in country and are, uh, will be gathering with that team in North Africa around the word as well to help encourage and refresh them. So as we turn to the word for the same thing, let's, let's pray for them uh, that that would happen for them as well. Father, we approach your word and we want to do so with, with humility. There is none like you, and, and your words are words that are, are our mercy to us. So we, may we sit under them rightly. May they be over us, not us over them. We, we pray the same would happen with your words today that we're praying would happen across the globe uh, and with our friends, family in North Africa, that your word would go out and that it would do great work in our hearts. We, we can't rely on our own methods and power for change and transformation, refreshment, encouragement to happen, but your word is powerful, and we can know that it's going to accomplish its work that it's sent out to do. So in that hope, we gather, and in that hope, we pray for those across the sea. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the earliest manuscript of a Jonathan Edwards sermon was, that was titled Christian Happiness and in this sermon, he gives a basic outline they have from this and a profound outline. Here it is. It's on the screen for you. There, speaking of Christians, their bad things work out for good. Their good things cannot be taken away. And their best things are yet to come. Now, I don't know, a few of you were probably around for my first sermon at Sojourn. Let's just say it wasn't like that. Like, how do you get this in your first manuscript as a young Jonathan Edwards? He gets Paul's message in Romans chapter 8, doesn't he? This is Romans chapter 8. Their, their bad things are going to work out for good. We're seeing that this morning. They're good things, like no condemnation, glory to come. Like, they can't be taken away. You're standing with God, can't be taken away. And your best things, the, the glory, the, the future redemption, the redemption of your body, the final revealing that you're a son of God that's going to happen in the end is yet to come. That's the message of Romans 8. And, and Romans 8, 28 through 30, Paul continues to, to dump, like he backs the dump truck up and continues to pour it out on top of believers, this confidence, this assurance, this sure hope for those believers that they get glory in the end. Believer, hear the truth of 28 through 30. All things work together for your good because the glory that God has called you to is the glory that he's going to bring you to. And he writes these words in the context that's not separated from the things we've talked about before. In the context of present sufferings. In the context of weakness and not knowing what to pray as we ought. Paul affirms, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In the present sufferings, Again, sufferings of verse 18, he says that glory awaits. In the present weakness of verses 26 and 27, he says the Spirit helps and the Spirit intercedes. Is it any wonder that Paul can affirm then after those things what he says here in verse 28, that all works together for the good of the Christian? There's clear destination, clear help along the way to that destination, and that's what brings out this we know from Paul. This is the fifth we know that Paul has used in, in, in the book of Romans. And it's the final one. He's used, we know, in chapter 2, verse 2. There's no excuse of man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that, judgment, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Or in chapter 3, verse 19. 
He speaks of sin and their throats being an open grave and they're misusing their words. They're sinful people. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Or in chapter 7, verse 14, he says, To that which is good, then bring death to be by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. Or in chapter 8, verse 22, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then the final one, here in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. These we know passages are, are passages that are axiomatic. In other words, they're, they're clear in Paul's understanding. They're, they're firmly established. They're self-evidently true in Paul's thinking. In apostolic thinking, they're self-evidently true. These are sayings, these are things that he holds with great confidence as he writes to the Romans. And what does he spend his last we know on here in Romans, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love God. He, he doesn't say all things work together for good for those without exception. It's not what he says. Think about, we're, we're going to study this more in chapter 9. Think about Pharaoh in the Exodus. Like, not all things worked out for his good. In fact, you could say for many that it's going to be as good as it's going to ever get right here and right now. Paul doesn't affirm that it's all working out for all good, for all without exception. He says for those who love God. We still know that the, what's true in Rome is the wage of sin is death. That's not good. Eternal death. That chapter 8 verse 1, in Christ there's no condemnation, but that means that apart from Christ there is condemnation. But he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's interesting that Paul says, for those who love God. It's a good way to describe Christians. They, they are those who love God. Maybe a good way to examine yourself to see whether I'm in the faith. Am I a Christian or not? One question to ask is to ask, do I love God? Do I love God? Because Christians love God. And yet, when we look in verse 1, we say it's for those who love God, all things work together for good. That, that, in and of itself, can be misleading. But what we need to not do is we must not mistake our love for God is the basis for our relationship with God. Which I think is why Paul clarifies. We must not mistake our love for God as the condition for all things working together for our good. So Paul clarifies. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then he adds... For those who are called according to his purpose. This is not Paul correcting what he said about those who love God. It's him clarifying. It's him further explaining that those who love God are those who are also called according to God's purpose. Any love to God is due to God's purpose in calling those people. In other words, John says it this way in 1 John. We love because God first loved us. The love for God is rooted in the calling of God. God initiates. He starts this thing, and by his initiation and his calling through the wonderful news that you can have right standing with God through faith in Jesus, we respond with love. That's the purpose. The purpose of that news going out is to justify sinners. And so the cause of love for God is not in any individual's purpose. I don't just purpose myself to love God. God first loved me. It's good news for us because he says of us, we're slaves in our sin. That's where we are naturally. We can't get out from underneath it. But he initiates and he moves. He calls according to his purpose. And if he calls according to his purpose and it lands on those who hear this good news with faith, then they are those who then move towards loving God. The cause of love for God is not in an individual's purpose after God, but in God's calling a purpose after them. And it's this very purpose that's at work in all things. That all those things might work together for good. He doesn't say all things, if you love God, all things work together for kind of neutrality. I think we'd take that at some times, right? I think we'd look around and be like, man, if things could just not be against me, if they could just be neutral, I'd probably take it. But Christian, there's better news for you than that. 
all things are not working just neutrally in your life. Certainly not working for bad. That's not what he said. He affirms something much, much better. They're all working for good. This doesn't separate it from the context, right? They're still groaning in the midst of present suffering. We're dealing with the presence of sin in a fallen world. There are still present sufferings. Paul knew them well. He was shipwrecked. He, he knew present evil. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. All of that is not good. Paul doesn't say it is good. He doesn't say all is good. There's a lot that's not good. What's amazing is that he said he works all those things for good. All works together for good. How in the world can Paul be so sure of this? He states it, doesn't he? Just matter-of-factly, with such certainty and confidence. Like, we know all things are working for good. How, how can he be so certain? I think it starts with agency. Notice the subject of all things work together for good. It's a bit ambiguous, isn't it? Could be all things. My translation says this. This is word for word what my translation says, the ESV. We know that for those who love God, all things work together. So you would think from that that the subject must be all things and that all things are working together. But it's not quite that clear. All things is very rare in Paul's writings as a subject of any verb. And on top of that, maybe you have a translation right now that you're reading that says God works all things together. Or perhaps, like mine, you have a footnote that says, well, early manuscripts, some have, that God works all things together. So there is actual early copies, early evidence of this letter from Paul that stated it like that. God works all things together for good. What we get from that is that we can't find some, like, we don't have conclusive evidence that God is the explicit subject here, but Either way, it doesn't matter because the context makes really, really clear that the agency of what is working this all things is God himself. Who is doing this? Who is working all things? Whether it's an explicit subject or not, it is so clear in the context that this is God that is doing these things. He is the one who is working all things. That the same one calling according to his purpose is the same one who is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called just as none works their way into loving God, so no one can work their way into all these things around them working together for their good. God works them. Believer, things working together for good in your life is not up to chance. It is not up to fate. It is not up to luck or some sort of blind forces. Those are unbiblical ideas that the scripture does not know. Things working together for your good are only at the hand of God or not at all. This is the only one who can work all things for good. He's shown it in the book of Revelation, hasn't he? In chapter 1, verse 20, he talked about his eternal power being displayed. Where? In creation, so that it's known. It's known in creation. You can look around and see things that are made and see power there, divine power, not human power, power that's outside of me, that's beyond me. Think about it. Think about water. In the beginning, there's, there's this chaos of water, and God tells it where to go, and he shuts it up where he wants it to be. That's incredible. Again, we, we carry, are we talking about carrying buckets of water a couple weeks ago? Like, if you've tried to carry and like maneuver water and make it go where you want it to go, it's pretty hard work. God tells it where to go and it stays. He marks its boundary. He's powerful. It's evident. His power is known in creation. Creation shouts, this is a God with power to work all things however he wants them. For good of those who love him. He can work any and all things. He can command them and they obey. Redemption shows this power too, doesn't it? That those who were once condemned can now have no condemnation. That those who were once unrighteous can be made righteous. That those who were dead in sins and trespasses, who were slaves to sin, can now be redeemed and set free and empowered to live a life that's new before the Lord. God redeems slaves, showing his power over sin and death. Power is on display in redemption. Resurrection kind of power. But redemption adds another layer of confidence to this we know of verse 28, doesn't it? Because redemption displays power, but what it also displays is love. God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's love on display, and that death was one for our justification, right? 
He is displaying not only power in redemption, but love in redemption. And so if creation is shouting, this is a God with the power to work all things according to the counsel of His will, all things for the good of those who love Him, then redemption is adding along with that shout, and He's going to do it for your good, believer. The agency of all things is not only in powerful hands, it's also in loving hands. These are the right hands. No one else could do this. Which is good news that God has all things because all things are included in Paul's statement here in verse 28, isn't it? He doesn't say some things. Some things work together for good. That would be good. All things. All things. How expansive. They all work together. This word work together is a word that Paul uses again in 1 Corinthians. It's used a few other times. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 16, it's used to, it's translated as fellow workers. I love the thought of that. Like if you were to personify all things, then, then you could say of them that these are all fellow workers. They're all these workmen going to work for good. Only God can take all things, make them fellow workmen for good. Because those things in and of themselves aren't doing that, right? All things, that's expansive. All these things are going out. They're all doing their different job. They're all fellow workers. They're working. They're all doing something. But they're not working for the same purpose, right? But under God they are. He's working all things. They're all his fellow workers working for the good of those who love him. Things are all working differently, but God makes them work in concert for the good of one who's called according to his purpose. This is what God does for Joseph in the book of Genesis. You, you look at the story of Joseph and you think, God is not working things for good here. His brothers hate him. They throw him in a pit. They sell him into slavery. He goes to, into slavery and he kind of gets out of it. And Potiphar's wife hates, well, loves him, but then just you know, betrays him and throws him into prison. He's there and he's faithful there. And what happens there? Someone's supposed to remember him and he forgets. Then there's a famine in the land. He's cut off from I mean, everything is not working for good. And all is not good there. There was a lot of evil that happened to him. Those are not good things. And yet what does he say at the end? It's breathtaking to see him look back and make some statements about what has happened. And so he says to his brothers in chapter 45, Come near to me, please. And they came near. These are the brothers that had betrayed him, that threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. They wanted him to be dead and gone. That's what they wanted. And this is what he says to them. I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. It's weird. Sure seems like they sent him there. But he says, God sent me here. He says, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you for, preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for you many survivors. Or in chapter 50, they're kind of scared because their father Jacob has now died, and they're like, maybe he's going to not like us now. And he says to them again, reassuring them, as for you, you meant evil against me, and they certainly did. All is not good. It's evil. But he doesn't end there. But God, God meant it for good. What does he say over and over again? God, God, God. This is one who things weren't working together for good for if we were to look at it with our own eyes. Hey, I told you this dream was going to come true so that you'd remember me when you get restored and you forgot me? What a jerk move. Hey, Pharaoh, working under your house and working for Potiphar, I'm doing good for your kingdom and you're going to lie about me? Or then comes the famine. He's cut off from his family and the people of God. Like, all is not working for good, but he says of God, of God, he meant all of those things for good. Not one detail was astray. Joseph couldn't come to the end and say, well, God meant all that evil that you intended me for good, but that cupbearer or that famine, all of those things, those are fellow workers meant for good. 
They were workmen that God employed for good. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And Paul wants readers to know that, that nothing, famine or evil, or nothing is an obstacle for the good that God wants to accomplish in their life. Nothing's an obstacle to that. Christian, your present sufferings aren't an obstacle for the good that God wants to accomplish. They're fellow workers for your good. Christian, your losses aren't an obstacle to the good in your life. They're working for it. Your disappointments, your hard relationships, that person you think keeps getting in the way of your own sanctification because they keep bringing you down and you show your sinfulness when you're around them, they're not an obstacle for the good that God wants to accomplish in your life. They're part of the fellow workmen, your hardships, your places of pains. All of these things, God says, are fellow workers working together for good. We can know this. We can have certainty about and confidence. We can hold it with confidence as the certainty that Paul holds it with because they're rooted in what? God's agency. He is the one that is doing this. You don't work your way into this like this is the next echelon of Christianity where down here he's working maybe some things, maybe nothing for your good. But if you move on down the line, then he'll start working all things for you. No, if you're in Christ, if you're one who loves God, called according to his purpose, this is true. It is stated as fact. It's according to his purpose, not yours, and we can know it. Here's what's hard, is that doesn't mean that we can see it. I don't think Joseph saw much when he was in the pit about God meaning things for his good. Doesn't mean that we understand how it's working for our good. I wonder if there were some sleepless nights in prison for Joseph as he thought, I'm not sure why I'm here anymore. How could I be abandoned and languished in this way? We may not see it. We may not understand it. We may be like Joseph in, in the pit or, or in prison or even as he's the prince of, of Egypt, but he's still cut off from his family. We may not be able to see it or understand it, but we can know it. Because God says it. Still, things are working for good. It's never required that we see it that we know or understand all the details of it, it has to be enough that it's all in God's hands and that he works all things for good. Because he says it. The one who created all things, who shows his eternal power, his divine nature and the things that have been created, the one who redeems, the one who has called you Christian according to his purpose, he can be trusted that all things are working for good. Remember the story of Corey Tinboom. If you don't know her story, she wrote about these things in the book called The Hiding Place. And she was under Nazi German rule, and she was taken to a concentration camp where, for the most part, she kind of portrays herself uh, as the lesser of her sister, Betsy, who was kind of always the saintly one praising God and giving thanks in all circumstances where she was struggling with those kinds of things. And, and one of these uh, times where this was, was seen so clearly was when they came to the barracks where they're, they're just stacked in basically on wooden slats. There's barely any room. There's putrid straw that they're given to lay on and it's full of fleas. And she thinks that this is again the, the, the pit of, of destruction on earth right here. And yet her, her sister tries to encourage her. No, like we can give thanks for all things and we should. That's what God tells us to do and, and she doesn't want to do it especially for the fleas. Her sister says, we can give thanks for the fleas. Well, they find out they had smuggled in a Bible. And, and every night they would gather together for worship and they would read words from the, from the Bible together. Like, think about God's light and truth hitting in the, one of the darkest places ever been on earth. Every night. And the guards and the supervisors wouldn't come near. You know why they wouldn't come near? Here's what they found out. They wouldn't come near because there were fleas in there. And so what did she start to learn? Oh, all things are working for good. All details are fellow workmen for God's good. Even fleas. Even fleas are working for good. She didn't see it. She didn't know it. Whether she sees it or knows it or not, that, that's, those things aren't dependent upon that. It was working for good. Christian, all things work together for good. Don't buy in, in the midst of your suffering, don't buy into this idea that your thing, whatever that thing is, great pain, great suffering, 
fleas, whatever that thing is, don't buy into that thing that's going to be the first exception to the rule that God has laid down here in verse 28. That somehow I'm going to be the first exception or somehow that thing that's working in my life is going to be the first exception. Or that that past thing seems so painful to me, that's going to be the first exception. Don't let the fear of your thing, whatever that thing is, don't let fear in the midst of your thing, whatever that thing is, convince you that God might have some good intentions, that he wants to work it for good, but he's going to let me down in this one. Don't let the pain of all things persuade you that God doesn't care to meet you and work for your good in that thing. Verse 28 is such a blessing to us because it is stated just simply as fact. If you love God, all things work together for good. God will not waver. God will not fail to keep his word. God will not fail to work all things for good. He is not weak in power over all things, and he is not growing faint or weary in that power. He is not lacking in love for his own. He demonstrates his love for you, demonstrated it so clearly with sending his son, his death on a cross, his resurrection and ascension. He's not lacking in love for his people. He's not unfaithful to his word. He hasn't been yet. He's not going to be now. So we can take him at his word when he says that all things are working together for our good. If we love him, then we just need to take him at his word and live that thing out. We can know this too. We can have certainty of this too. We can have confidence in this too, that for those who love God, all things work for good. Now, to further solidify this truth, Paul doesn't back off on all this, this talk on, on what God is or isn't doing in all the midst of this, this jumbled up world that we live in. He actually pushes the pedal down a little bit further. Like, let's talk about what God is actually doing further solidifies this truth, clarifies and expands and emphasizes this last phrase that he uses, verse 28. He doesn't back away and say, oh, I used some weird words there, called according to his purpose, that makes people uneasy. He pushes the pedal down and he says, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Again, this idea of, of chance or fate or luck or blind forces working together for good are not known in the scripture whatsoever. God works things for good. Verse 29, it pushes down. God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign purpose, that's the thing that's at work here. Not blind forces, not fate, not chance, not luck. God's plan and purpose. As we go through verse 29 and 30, God, He is the explicit subject of these verbs. And, and it gives just continued confirmation of verse 28 that, that He's the subject working all things together for good. And he says that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He, he's introducing here the eternal counsel of God. What a privilege that we get to sit in on that. But what he's trying to do before we talk, tackle those words is to give confidence, right? Remember the context? Confidence in your sufferings, confidence in your weakness, that this is a God who's, if he's called you to glory, he's going he's to keep you and he's going to keep you and sustain you until you reach that glory in the end. That's what he's trying to do here. And so he furthers that by saying, those whom he foreknew. This is the idea that God knows beforehand, but what is known? Not just facts. He knows whom. He knows persons. Know in the scripture, all through scripture, it's this intimate word. It's often used in terms of intimacy. He knows personally, intimately, people. It's a word of love and affection. And, and what does God do? He sets his love and affection on specific People. Look in Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says of Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God didn't just foreknow facts about him. Right? He had set his love on a specific person. The object of his knowledge was a person, was Jeremiah himself. And then he says of that, I consecrated you and appointed you. Jesus in the New Testament is foreknown. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He was delivered over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's one reference of Jesus. Again, the person being foreknown and part of the foreknowledge of God. But look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten 
for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is, the gracious, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I must be in the wrong, got to be in the wrong one. For what credit is it? Yep, I got the wrong one up there too. Sorry about that. I thought the screen would save me. It did not. Well, there's another one in Peter. <laughs> I'm not putting my eyes on it at the moment. He is called in Peter somewhere the one who is foreknown, the Lamb of God. He was foreknown. And this foreknowledge of God, wasn't it's foreknowledge of Jesus as the Son of God, was, was a matter of God's personal love for him. He, he was appointing him as a, as a person. He, he wasn't just thinking about facts of, of history. He was thinking about a person. Or, or we look to Romans chapter 11, verse 2, where he uses this word again. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Again, it's personal. In what sense did he foreknow Israel? Again, the object is people. What sense did he foreknow them? I think we can look and we, we could find in Amos kind of a, a parallel to help us. If you turn to the book of Amos, in the midst of your Old Testament, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, it says, you, speaking of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. But listen to that first part again. You, Israel, I have known of all the families of the earth. Does he not know all the other families of the earth? He knows them, but he's speaking of them as if he knows them in an intimate way. I've set my love on you as a people, on a specific people out of all the families. You, Israel, are the object of my knowing. And in contrast to all the families, Israel is known in a specific way. In other words, he set his love specifically on Israel. And the same is found in chapter 11, verse 2 of Israel. God has not rejected, that would be an antonym of this foreknowledge, his people whom he foreknew. He foreknows them. God set his love on them. They're the object of his foreknowledge. Not facts, people, things, a nation, a people, foreknow is the antonym of rejected there. In other words, it's not about facts and information. It's about an intimate relationship. It's about love that's specific in its object. In that case, in chapter 11, verse 2, it's Israel. And verse 29 of chapter 8 has a specific object too, doesn't it? Whom? It's the whom. Those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. That's the object of this personal Love and foreknowledge, a personal pronoun. Individual believers, that's who he's speaking about. This, these believers that are in Rome, he foreknew them, God says. In other words, God set his love on individuals, and he knows not just facts and information about them, he knows them. He knows them intimately. It's the same idea that's set forth in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul links these ideas together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, very similar word there, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Who does he choose? Us, individuals, to be holy and blameless before him in love. He keeps going. One sentence there, in love. Notice, let's go together, this choosing, this loving. They go together because that's what that is. It's a setting of love and affection on individuals chosen before, foreknown, and love. They all belong together. And so one author gives us this help. He says, it means foreknowledge, foreknowing, whom he set regard upon, or whom he foreknew from eternity with distinguishing affection and delight, and is virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. And this foreknowing is added on to. Again, he doesn't let off like that's a lot for them to grasp. No, he keeps going. He foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Foreknew speaks about distinguishing love. Predestined speaks about distinguished direction and plan and purpose. They're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Distinguishing love of foreknowledge moves into this specific direction and a distinct plan and purpose of conformity to the son of God. Those that are foreknown, as Jesus was, are chosen for a clear plan of conformity to that son. And notice that in this verse, there's not one without the other. 
There's an exact correspondence between them. Those who are foreknown are also predestined. Those go together. What he's doing here is at least in part giving a definition to the good that he spoke of in verse 28. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That good of verse 28 that he spoke of, it's found defined a little bit more clearly in verse 29. That good is the conformity to the image of his son. Man was made in the beginning in the image of God. Adam could be called a son of God, but what happened in the midst of they, Adam was made to reflect back the, the goodness and the beauty and the glory of God as his image bearer, but that image was shattered when he chose to disobey God and not live under his good reign and good rule. He wanted to be like God in a different way, and so he disobeyed God, and that image was completely shattered. Others came along, and they were called sons of God too, right? I mean, Israel, the son of God. Shattered image of God. Kings, the son of God, shattered image of God. But then the image of the invisible creator stepped onto planet earth. He showed what this image was to look like. He perfectly portrayed it as he stepped onto this earth. And he didn't just portray it, he came to restore it. And now those who are called according to his purpose, who are foreknown and predestined, are being conformed to that image the one that Jesus came to restore. And so all those who trust in Christ, who are adopted into this family, who are adopted sons and daughters of God, are being made to look like their elder brother, Savior King Jesus. That's the destination, Christian. That's where this is going. That's what all things are working for, to conform you to the image of the Son of God. Sometimes that's going to look like what it looked like for Jesus. It's going to look like sorrow. He was a man of sorrows. It's going to look like grief. He was acquainted with grief. It might look like a cross. But the purpose in all of that is good and is to conform you to the image of Jesus. We know that he might have went to the cross, but what did he end up with? Resurrection glory. So too is the path of all Christians. Don't miss that because of God's calling and purpose, his foreknowledge and predestination, that many will be called brothers Many are going to join the supreme elder brother, Jesus Christ, as those who are like him one day. Christians aren't those who want all things to work for good, but aren't interested if that looks like Jesus or not. Christians are those who love God. They want to image God. They want to be like Jesus. And so conformity to Jesus, looking like Jesus, is their good. That's what they want. And so if you're interested in all things working for your good, but you're not interested in conforming to Jesus, then you have lots of reason to question if you actually love God and if you're called according to his purpose. And we'd say in that place, like, then repent of that and look at the beauty and greatness of God and trust in him. And if you love him and trust in him, then all of those things are going to conform you to the very thing that you now find your greatest good looking like Jesus. Paul assures that all in the Christian's life is working like that. And so we need to hear it again. There is no obstacle in God accomplishing the formation of Christ in your life. All things are working for it. That pain is not getting in the way. That hard relationship is not getting in the way. All of them are still fellow workers to conform you to the image of the Son. Jesus is the one who went ahead of us. He showed us the way. He's the firstborn. He went through sufferings and he was exalted as a son. And Christian, that's our path. That's the destination. There might be present sufferings, but there will be glory in the end because he's the supreme one and he says we're going to be made to look like him and he's going to be among many brethren. Many. This conformity to Jesus is at work right now. All things are working together for it right now. And one day they're going to be completed. Hey, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. One day... We're going to become like him because we're going to see him as he is. We'll arrive at the destination. Like the truths of verse 28 and 29 make sure that we know we're going to get there. Not because we wanted to. That's his purpose. That's what he worked for us. That's what he's currently working for us. It's not us working our way into it so that we'll get there to see him. He's getting us there and we'll see him and he'll transform us into his image perfectly, finally, fully. Paul assures us. 
Now, what this doesn't do is this doesn't eliminate anything that we've said in the book of Romans so far. It's all working in congruence with all that we've said in Romans. He's not backing off anything that he said. He's not going against or contradicting anything he said in Romans so far. Right? The, the gospel is the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to the Greek, to those who aren't Jews. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He didn't just go back from that. That's the gospel. Righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. You need to trust in God. Or he says, but now, chapter 3, verse 21, the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law and the prophets. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God is now found in faith in Jesus Christ for all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God put forward his son as a propitiation to be received by faith. Unbeliever, if you're hearing this, you're thinking, what am I supposed to do with foreknowledge and predestination? Like, where do I fit in? Here's how you fit in. You can believe in Jesus Christ and have right standing with God. Paul has never said to you, unbeliever, you need to embrace all this concept of, of foreknowledge and predestination. He actually doesn't say it to us either, Christian, although we should embrace it. We'll get to that. Right? But we embrace Jesus. That's what we embrace. And when we embrace Jesus, Paul just lets us in right here in the book of Romans in chapter 8 on the eternal counsel of God. He says, you embrace Jesus, this is actually what it looks like. So if you're not a believer and you're wondering what to do here, I'm telling you, embrace Jesus Christ. Like you can have right standing with God through his work. Believe in him. But what verse 28 does for believers is it assures us that that faith that we have in Jesus, it's going to get to its goal. It's going to be found complete one day. That faith that is counted to us right now is righteousness, although we're not fully righteous, one day will be counted to us as righteousness, right? The, we're supposed to walk right now in newness of life because we have it. One day we will give way to eternal life because we'll have it. The no condemnation that he said in chapter 8, verse 1, is one day going to end in the glorification that he speaks up in this passage. We're going to get to the goal because these things are true. And so Paul's aim is not merely to add to the description of what it means to be a Christian, but to assure those Christians to give them strong confidence and certainty and hope. He's trying to nurture their faith. And what is faith? It's looking to Jesus, resting fully in Him, walking in Him. And what does that look like? He, this is the one who is holy. So again, he doesn't back off and say, well, if I tell them this, they won't want holy lives. No, they want to be conformed to Jesus, and Jesus was holy, and so they're going to keep walking holy lives. But they'll get there, because those whom I foreknew, I also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. They're going to make it. The glory that I called them to is the glory that I'm going to give them in the end. I think this is why Paul continues to resume. Verse 29 and 30 are the, what's called the golden chain of salvation by one Puritan. He, he resumes the chain. Right? In verse 29, he goes back before the ages and he says, you were foreknown and predestined. And now in verse 30, he's going to go the other side of the ages and say, uh, you're going to get to glory. Look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, I want us to notice that God is the subject of all these verbs. God is the one doing this. God is the one who foreknew. He is the one who predestined. He is the one who, verse 30, predestined, called, justified, glorified. God. In part, we want to say, like, man, if, if we have issues with some of these words, then, then the place to take it up is with the Lord himself. He did them. He wrote them. And we're certain that he can handle those questions. He's not scared that you have them. Bring them to him. Uh, one pastor that I've been reading a lot of lately, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he had in his day like a, a major shift and push toward liberalism and taking out some kind of core tenets of, of what the scripture just plainly teaches. And he says of that, one of these things being predestination here, he says, indeed there is a movement on foot to amend predestination and the atonement, thinking that Jesus actually died for sinners, in the place of sinners. To amend predestination, so as to bring them up to date. 
How on earth can you talk of bringing these eternal truths up to date? They are not only up to date, they are and will be ahead of the times to all eternity. We're not making this up like this is just written for us. We don't need to make it true, it is true. Like, so we need to not be so concerned about what is up to date or not. We need to worry about true truth. And it comes from the word, and these are the words that he said. It's rooted in him, and it's his will. So we might think, oh, why does God say it this way? Why does he foreknow? Why does he predestine? Like, because he willed. And if we're seeking more than that, well, we need to know at least we can seek that out. There's nothing wrong with those kinds of questions, but we need to know that there's nothing greater than his will. So maybe no extra, greater explanation is needed than that this is what God wills. Amen. So it's, it's not us for us to make it look nice. We just want to say what's true. God says this is true. It's God's doing, graciously doing this. Right? Graciously, God's grace is never waiting around, waiting for another to make the first move. That's really good news because remember what he said about us in Romans so far? Slaves to sin, dead in Adam. The wages of that sin is death and God is not up in heaven waiting for us to make the first move. He graciously makes the first move. And what this doesn't do is this is far from eliminating faith, far from eliminating any sort of responsibility to respond to the right standing, the righteousness that's offered to us in the gospel. What it does eliminate though is some sort of self-salvation. It does eliminate us working our way into this. It does eliminate us being able to get it because we're Jewish or because we're circumcised or because we're part of something or because we've done something. It eliminates all of that and says, actually, it's only God alone that saves or it doesn't, there's no salvation at all. Amen. And so he starts it, he predestined before the ages, but notice he continues it in history. He says, those whom he predestined, he also called. That is him working in the ages, right? He's outside the ages predetermining, predestining things. And in the ages, he's working, he's calling. How does he call? Paul speaks of this calling in a few different places. If you look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Yes, a few of these I've managed to keep the right passage on there. Sometimes you mess up, and that's why you need God to see you through to the end. To this he called you, Thessalonians, believers, through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting at here. Galatians chapter 1, he speaks of his own calling. Chapter 1, verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, before the ages even, and who called me, how? By his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. How does he call. How does he reveal himself? It's by grace, and he revealed the Son to him. And remember that? He was on the road to Damascus, and he just showed up. Paul wasn't seeking for him. He wasn't working his way into it. He wasn't like a seeker, but now I'm going I'm to try to ask the right question. No, he just was walking on a road trying to destroy the church, and Jesus shows up. That's the call for Paul. The gospel's going out, or Jesus is showing up, and that's the call. And those whom he Predestined, he calls, is what he says here. He calls through the gospel. This has to mean then a call that's effective because those who are called, it goes on to say, they are also justified. In, in chapter 3 of, of Romans, we, we know about justification. We've used that word a lot. What does he say? You're justified. You, you've fallen short of the glory of God, but you're justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. There's never an elimination of any sort of response or actually believing. You're justified by faith. Actually, you're justified by believing that you're justified by faith. Right? We've talked about that. Go back and listen if you need to. Or just go back and study with your home group. There's no elimination of some sort of response here. But he says if you've been called, you've been justified. It only happens by faith in the book of Romans. And so when the gospel goes out and it's heard with ears of faith, one is justified. And if you're justified by your faith in Jesus, Paul's just working that backward. And so you want to work that backward, you can say, if you're justified, if you trust in Jesus, you were called, you were predestined. You can trace it forward, too. 
I think that's what Paul intends for us here. That the justified are what? Not just justified, he also glorified. They're going to reach that glory that awaits them in the end. The full and final redemption, he says, glorified. If you are predestined, you are called, you are justified, you are glorified. That's a future thing that he's talking about. Right? We have redemption now, but we're waiting final and full redemption. It's present, but it's not fully here yet. And so that's a future realization and reality that Paul speaks to. But did you notice how he talked about all these verbs here? God is doing them, but he's doing them, and it says in the past tense. And what's he communicating by that? I think he's communicating the certainty with which he's done these things. God predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Believer, all those things in the past tense are true of you, I think, Paul would say. And notice the, the certainty in, in that there's exact correlation and correspondence between each one of these. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. I mean, he says it over and over again, I think to belabor the point that there is exact correspondence. Listen to it again. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why does he have to say that every time? He's making his point. If you're predestined, you're going to make it to glory. If you're called, if you trust in Jesus, you're making it to glory. If you're justified through your faith, you're making it to glory. Christian, that means you, weak you, frail you, suffering you, the, the you that says, I believe, help my unbelief, you. You are going to make it to glory, not because you want to, but because God has designed it that way. He's set it according to his purpose. And if he's called you, he's going to justify you, he's going to glorify you. The destination is clear. Unbeliever, we would say again, like, believe. You're justified by your faith in Jesus. Believe. And then your destination will be as clear as any believer that Paul speaks up here in chapter 8, verse 28. And all things will be working the same way that he talks about. But notice the exact correspondence, the exact extent each time. For those who God loves, all roads lead to glory. For those who are called according to his purpose, all roads lead to glory. You can't get off that road that leads to glory because those whom he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. They all lead to glory. All things are working together for this end. Not one thing can bump that off track. We're going to read about that here in chapter 8 next week, right? Not even famine, danger, nakedness, sore, nothing can knock that off track or separate that. It's all working to this end. Now here's my guess. Is that when we hear these words in this passage, we may meet these words and these concepts with confusion. I get it. There's time for questions and thinking through these with great thought and wisdom and good people around you, but let's also meet these words with worship. This is God's actions that we're talking about now. We're not going to back off on what God has said that he has done. Right? We don't need to make truths sound great. We need to make truths sound what they're like. We want them to be true truths. And so when we meet these words, like Paul is trying to infuse into believers a sense of assurance and confidence and certainty that if he called them to glory, they're going to get to glory. And so we're going to meet these words maybe with questions and confusion, but certainly meet them with worship. We may have all kinds of questions. We may not understand the details of verses 28 through 30 at all. Paul actually doesn't even give that many. He just states them as fact. But don't miss what God is giving here. Because these may be confusing concepts. These may be strange words or words that seem harsh to us, but they're good news words. Think of this, Jesus. He is the one who came. And, and you know how he was described in chapter 1 of Romans. He was descended, how? From David. Well, that's weird. Right? How did he descend from David? Because well, God promised a king. You could trace this all through the scriptures. Like, we needed a son of David, and yet then he says he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the resurrection. How can he be son of David and son of God? Well, it's because God foreknew and predestined. Those are good news words. Or you think about Abraham. Chapter 4. Through foreknowledge, now we know that Abraham 
who believed the promise of God, can now be the father of all, not just of the circumcised, but all who have faith in Jesus. Why? Because God foreknew. This is good news words. So we can say that in chapter 8, verse 1, when he says, anyone who is in Christ and those who are in Christ, you can be assured of glory because of these great words that he says here. They might be confusing words, but we're not going to back off foreknowing, predestination, because these are words of worship for us, glory to us. When we come to these words, it shouldn't be with a sense of, how could he? But with a sense of, how could he have done that? Knowing what we know in Romans, that I was separated from God, that, that I was fallen short of the glory of God, that I was a sin, to, the slave to sin, that I, I was dead in my sin and, and under the, the curse, and I was in Adam. How could he? It's not, oh, he foreknew and he predestined. But he foreknew, like he predestined. Christian, this is of you. He called you. He justified you. He's going to glorify you. Somehow, we get to say that with a, a wonder and an awe of worship. In eternity past, God set his sight on a bride. And he sent a groom to get her. And that groom came and lived perfectly, died sacrificially so that he'd get his girl. And what Romans 8 says is that God always gets the girl. Believer, my outline wasn't as good as this, but let's hear it again. Our bad things will work out for good. Our good things, no condemnation in Christ, forgiveness, new life right here, right now, justification, relationship with God cannot be taken away. Our best things, glory with God the Father, fully redeemed, one of the many brothers uh, looking like our elder brother, Savior King Jesus, are yet to come. And so here's what we do, Christian. Let's eat, drink, and live. For yesterday we have died, and tomorrow we will be glorified. Let's pray together. God, how could you? We do not deserve to be a part of your bride. We do not deserve to have all of our sin and rebellion overlooked. We don't deserve to wear this white, pure wedding dress that you've given us, covering our shame through your good deed. None of us have earned this, and you have poured it out on us, and you have ensured us and promised us that you are taking us all the way. And we take this meal today to uh, prefigure this wedding feast that we're going to have with you. And we don't, we shouldn't be sitting at that table either. You are so good to us, and today you've blown our minds with your word. It's over our heads in so many ways, but it's over our heads. It's given to us for the purpose of encouraging us. We have a lot of fellow workers in our lives right now that, not maybe people, but events and circumstances, fellow workers that we think there's no way that can work for good. But it can and it does. And its purpose is to make us look more and more and more like you until the day that we see your face and can thank you face to face for making us like you. I can't wait for that day, Jesus. And I pray that is a day of rejoicing for everyone who's heard your word in this place today, God. Grant faith where it doesn't exist. For those here who feel like 
They're on the outside looking in, God. Call them in. Let them believe in your beautiful work of love on the cross for our behalf, your death for our sin, your resurrection from the grave to promise us what is coming to us in full, new bodies and eternal life on a brand new earth with you, our Savior. God, thank you for your word. Help us to believe it with all of our might and let it be on our lips as we speak to others. In your name I pray, amen.